Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, where did COVID come from? What was once a conspiracy theory is now getting serious attention. Plus, who was in control of the police department during last summer's riots? The answer will surprise you. And a local member of the Trump circle is on the outs with the former administration. But first, here's Como's Elisa Jaffe. On this vote, the yeas are 54, the nays are 35. Senate Republicans are blocking formation of an independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said former President Trump still holds a massive influence over the GOP. Senate Republicans chose to defend the big lie because they believe anything that might upset Donald Trump could hurt them politically. We knew how Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell was going to vote. I do not believe the additional extraneous commission that Democratic leaders want would uncover crucial new facts or promote healing. ABC's Andy Field joining us on the Como Newsline from Washington. A few Republicans crossed the aisle today, Andy. What happened? Yeah, six of them. Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass. Those are the six. Well, here's a math quiz for the listeners. 54 is greater or less than 35. Your answer, please. Well, it's greater than. Yes, 54 is a majority of the votes. And guess what? 35 won because you needed 10 Republicans. You needed actually 60 votes to uh, get past the filibuster. That is why it did not pass the Senate, even though a majority of the people in the Senate, there were a lot of people that didn't vote on this here there was one republican i can't remember what his name but he said oh he had another appointment but he said he would have voted for it if he was there you know it was a convenient way of kind of avoiding the thing altogether because he knew it wasn't going to pass so where are we now with this bipartisan commission it doesn't exist anymore there will not be one between the house and the senate what will happen is is that the senate and the house will continue conducting their own little siloed investigations into whether the police had enough money whether the pentagon did its job But it's unlikely you're going to get to the bottom of this as to why President Trump did not, like he did during the Black Lives Matter protest outside the White House, immediately send in military force to stop protesters who may have threatened things. Although in the Black Lives Matter protest, they weren't threatening the White House. They were simply yelling and screaming outside. Whereas in this January 6th attack, they actually bashed down the doors of the Capitol and injured upwards of 160 police officers. How much of an influence did President Trump have on this? Did he start making phone calls? What what happened there? Well, he issued a public statement saying he doesn't want them to vote for this thing. He says, you know, it's another partisan witch hunt on the part of the Democrats, despite the fact that this was indeed a deal hammered out in the House between Republicans and Democrats to have equal power in terms of whether you subpoena people, an equal number of people on the panel and outside experts. Uh, basically, the reason it took so long from January until just now to even make this deal is because the Republicans wanted to add a whole bunch of other things to it that had nothing to do with the January 6th attack. And so this was the Democrats' compromise. They thought they had a deal. In fact, there were even uh, Republicans, including Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy at one point saying, yeah, okay, we'll we'll probably do something like this. And then they got a note from the front office in Mar-a-Lago saying, I don't want you to do it. And suddenly everyone turned around and said, no, we're not going to do it. ABC's Andy Field joining us from Washington, D.C. Thank you, Andy. 
Thank you. Still to come, President Biden and the federal response to the death of George Floyd. With the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. President Biden meeting with the family of George Floyd at the White House on the one-year anniversary of Floyd's death. But beyond that meeting, Mr. Biden has yet to offer any concrete action for the family of the man whose death at the hands of a white Minneapolis police officer sparked a global reckoning over systemic racism and a movement for police reform. Joining me now is ABC's Ike Jachi. He's from Washington, D.C. And I guess the first question I would have for you is in the one year since George Floyd's death, what policy changes, if any, have we seen? Well, unfortunately, we haven't seen much. Like you said, it's been 365 days since George Floyd lost his life under that knee of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. And we heard almost immediately a cry for police reform in the days following that. And today we saw George Floyd's family, including his daughter Gianna, who famously said her daddy changed the world. They all met with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, including President Biden, just to see if they can have a private moment, according to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. And Representative Karen Bass of California, she's the chief author of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. She met with the family as well, and she acknowledged that the anniversary will pass without new legislation, but the fact that more is still going to be done and that lawmakers are both still trying to hammer out the facts. But here's what we know right now. One year later, the Biden administration and Congress alike, they don't have any policing reform measure at the federal level, despite calling for change alongside the public outrage. Now, the White House has not given an update on when it would like to see the bill pass, saying only that Biden would like to sign it into law as quickly as possible. Now, the president, he called on Congress to pass police reform legislation so he can sign it by today. But those negotiations, they continue on Capitol Hill. And key lawmakers say meaningful progress is being made, but there's still a lot of work to do. Now, I mentioned before how the House, they passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act in March. And what that does is it aims to increase law enforcement accountability by ending no-knock warrants, advanced chokeholds. It even creates a national registry for police misconduct. And most importantly, it sees to end qualified immunity. Now, both sides have yet to find consensus over one of the thorniest disagreements, that qualified immunity. And what it does is it offers police officers that would it would actually uh, add protection for police officers against civil lawsuits brought against them. Now, Democrats, they want to get rid of this. Republicans are now saying that they're willing to amend it. How? Well, they said they want to amend it by protecting individual police officers, but allowing those civil lawsuits to go against the police department. Now, that wasn't the only thing that happened on the Hill. Uh, the NAACP president, Derek Johnson, he announced that he's going to meet with Senator Cory Booker and other lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are working on the bill, saying that it's critical that the bill is substantive and that they get it right. Now, they said they want the right bill, not a rushed bill. But you're still seeing both sides committed to getting something on the table relatively soon. But how much can the federal government really do? Because policing as a general rule is is mostly a, a local issue. Isn't this something that's typically done state by state? It really is. I mean, there's 18,000 different police departments and 18,000 different ways police, uh, the police officers are trained and how they do their job. And what you're also seeing is you're seeing some movement on the state 
state level. Granted, federally, we haven't really seen much, but there are 22 states right now trying to enact some kind of police reform legislation in their own merits. So you're seeing a local and a statewide effort to try to get whatever the federal uh, laws can't pass at time. So you are right. It is difficult to have some kind of federal uh, system for policing. Nevertheless, they're still trying to, in some way, have some kind of uh, blanket rules that affect to all police departments across the country. And it's something that's going to take some time for both sides to agree on. And what happened in Minneapolis, the hometown of George Floyd, where this all took place? Well, today there was a big event that was supposed to commemorate that one-year anniversary. And it was supposed to be a lot of silent protests and things of that, things of that nature today. Uh, our own crew, actually, uh, ABC's Alex Prochet, uh, he was down there for the past couple of days reporting on the commemorations. And actually, around 11 a.m. earlier today, he was live on, a- on our ABC News Live, and we heard what appeared to be gunshots ring out right behind him, forcing him to dump out of the live shot and actually hide behind a car in a parking lot near the area where George Floyd George Floyd's life was uh, was lost. So today was a, a mixture of uh, a peaceful protest, yet there's still some uh, heated action around the area, that area where he uh, passed away. Nevertheless, uh, in the entire state, Governor Tim Walz, he's a Democrat, he did sign a proclamation asking Minnesotans for nine minutes and 29 seconds of silence at 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time uh, earlier today in order to honor George Floyd. Uh, as far as in Minneapolis and in Minnesota, you're seeing a lot of efforts to really commemorate uh, what happened a year ago. Nevertheless, it does still seem to appear to have some unrest around the area. All right, ABC's Ike Johnchi from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. When we come back, more controversy at Seattle City Hall as the fallout over the chop continues when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, the fallout continues from last year's riots on Capitol Hill, the chop, the chaz, and all of that, the withdrawal from the East Precinct. Who ordered that? Well, that picture is starting to become more clear. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, it looks like like the Seattle Police Department is putting most of the blame on alleged violations of the use of tear gas and others on an assistant chief who has since been demoted. Joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich. And what's going on here? Well, this has been a big question for a lot of people for a long period of time, almost a year now. Uh, May 29th is when Seattle started seeing protests following the death of George Floyd. And those protests in those very, very early days were violent and destructive in downtown Seattle. On May 29th and 30th, uh, crowds came through downtown. Uh, They looted. There was uh, police cars on fire. There was tear gas, blast balls, pepper spray, you name it, declared riot for two nights. And protests were violent for the first five nights, all the way way up to June 1st, where we had the so-called pink umbrella incident by the East Precinct. And as you may, may recall, what that precipitated was nonstop tear gassing of protesters up at the East Precinct for several days, and the precinct was eventually uh, abandoned by police. So it, it was a cascading effect of all these decisions by someone at SPD as to who was responsible for this. And this was a, and keep in mind, Jeff, this was a huge event just all across the country, but just here in Seattle, what was happening here. So the Office of uh, Police Accountability looked into mainly that one incident known as the pink umbrella incident who ordered the tear gassing of the crowd at that point. And the, the so why is it called complaint- the pink umbrella incident? Well, the, the story it's called pink umbrella because 
uh, a protester who was at a line at a barricade had a pink umbrella and the protesters hold umbrellas so they don't get pepper sprayed as a protection. Well, an officer had grabbed a pink umbrella that was being poked at him at the barricade that precipitated a little tussle, some pepper spray, and then basically all hell broke loose. There was tear gas, blast balls, and blah, blah, blah. So it's known as the pink umbrella incident. So when that happened, there was a question as to who ordered all that? Who ordered the tear gassing of that crowd uh, when they weren't, weren't trying to do that anymore? The Office of Police Accountability investigated and pointed the finger at a lieutenant who was on the ground at that point saying he gave that order and he should be disciplined. Well, the chief Diaz then in his first time he's ever done this as an interim police chief overturned that OPA recommendation and said, nope, it was somebody else. So there's pressure on Diaz to determine who that person was. And then on uh, Wednesday of the week, uh, he came out and said, I have a person. I'm not naming him, but we at Como uh, were able to confirm it was Assistant Chief Steve Hirjack who had been with the department since 1993. He's the first Asian American uh, put on the command staff by Chief Best at the time uh, at SPD, the very first one. He was, at the time, was in charge of what the, the SPD called the Department of Homeland Security, their own little Homeland Security Department. And because he had that title, he became the incident commander for all the protests going all the way back to May 29th, the very first night of the violent protests in downtown Seattle. So the chief in his letter to the council and the mayor, which he has to do by the city charter, um, said it was a culmination of his decisions from May 29th all the way up to June 1st, that pink umbrella incident, the culmination of his decisions, he found, quote, problematic, unquote. And so he had has basically put the blame or responsibility for these decisions that are questionable at the time and using of tear gas and everything on Assistant Chief Steve Hirjack. And on Wednesday, he demoted him down to his previous rank, which was captain. And that's where he is sits right now. So what exactly was was wrong with what Hirjack allegedly did? Because it, it's one thing to look back Hindsight is twenty twenty, but in the heat of the moment, when you've got a riot going on, when violence is happening, things escalate very quickly. What does the the chief, the interim chief Diaz, say was wrong with the ordering of the use of tear gas or, or or other weapons or other methods to control the crowd? Well, he doesn't specifically say in his letter what was wrong. He just called the culmination of his decisions problematic. That's the one key one word in his letter. That is the clue of why he felt it was there were some problems there. And, you know, the, it, he said that the culmination of all the decisions escalated everything uh, to the point where we had these violent confrontations between the uh, protesters and police. What's, what's really the question in my mind in all this is, well, where does the role of Chief Best at that time play? Well, you as think well that she'd be commanding the staff and, and, and even not or commanding the police that are responding to this. And in an emergency situation, the mayor can certainly take command of the police department as well. Why is all, all of these critical decisions, why are they being left to the people on the ground? Absolutely. And I've been told by a high source within the department um, that that's going to come out. We're going to find out about that. We don't know about that now, but that's going to come out because it just in such. And that's why I want to point out to the severity of what was happening on the ground. How can you not 
have a police chief making those key decisions, uh, monumental decisions, uh, and even in the moment, involved in the decision making of these things and had an assistant chief do it over a period of several days where there was multiple protests happening at multiple times during the day in the city. But again, this comes back to what we talked to about before, Jeff. We're missing text from Chief Diaz, Chief Scoggins, the fire chief, the mayor, that during this whole period, the communications, everybody they had on their cell phones, those texts are missing. And those are proving even more crucial now as we start learning more about the decision-making process. And this is all going to play a role in all those lawsuits now filed against the city about CHOP and the protests. There's a wrongful death of Lorenzo Anderson. It just, it seems to be just compiling on. So even the decision that Chief Diaz made on Wednesday, demoting this assistant chief down to a captain and basically putting the responsibility for all these command decisions on him, that's going to play a role in these lawsuits. You know, is it is now this assistant chief going to be named in the lawsuits? Because that's what Diaz is saying. He's responsible for making some of these decisions. And it wasn't the police chief. So the interim chief, Diaz, is saying that it is this assistant chief or now lieutenant that is who has since been he's demoted, captain or, or excuse me, uh, captain now since he's been demoted, was the one that ordered the use of these crowd control measures that are so controversial. Do we know what the policy is for Seattle police? Is it under their policy only the chief can order that, or is it the, the tactical commanders on the ground? At that time, the tactical commanders on the ground can do that. They had the latitude. You know, it's totally different right now. You actually have to have the approval of the mayor. Based on state legislative law that just passed, the mayor has to approve the use of tear gas now. But back then, the person on the ground, the incident commander, did have the leeway to use all these methods that have been controversial ever since. Uh, So that was available to them. So in hindsight, you know, this is where I'm putting in I'm putting in what my what I'm thinking here. And this is not factual, but this is in, in perspective. In hindsight, can you blame someone for making all those tactical decisions over a five-day period and not have the chief involved in this decision-making process uh, and just leave it all to an assistant chief. Well, it sounds like he had the authority when he gave these orders. Now it's just a matter of was the judgment sound is what it, it sounds like. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes, it is. And I think uh, I don't think this story is over. I really don't think this story is over. We're going to find out more and we don't know what how um, this now Captain Steve Herjack is going to respond about all this. Well, in, in the related story, we're still trying to figure out just who ordered the withdrawal from the East Precinct because that was a result of all of these protests mm-hmm. that went awry uh, several days later. Uh, what new are we learning about that? Well, it, it comes from a candid interview that Chief Carmen Best did on May 7th that was released in the podcast called Reducing Crime on Monday of the week of, excuse me, Sunday of of the week. Um, Chief Best had a sit down lunch with the host, Jerry Ratcliffe, and who is a person who is a professor at Temple University who talks about police accountability, does has his whole podcast about policing. And so she appeared on this and spoke for about a half hour on a variety of subjects, but she also, she did talk about the, decision to close the East Precinct. And he pressed that on her. And it comes down to what what was new about this is that she said that she was in, she did not want it closed. And she reinstated what she had said before. It was a command staff decision. And then she said that I think the most telling part was that she had a conversation with one of her assistant assistant chiefs. And she said that she did not want the uh, precinct closed. 
She was not at the precinct at the time. She wasn't exactly sure what was happening at that moment. And then after she told the assistant chief, um, I don't want it closed. She hung up. The assistant chief hung up. And a couple hours later, they evacuated the precinct. And then she said in the podcast, like, what happened? Like, she didn't know that that had happened. Again, how is the chief kind of out of the loop on something like that for closing a precinct during a protest? Um, she basically supported afterwards now saying that it wasn't her decision, but she felt that, you know, the staff at the time felt that they were in jeopardy. They're being threatened. Um, there was information from the FBI that there's a, there was a threat against that building, the precinct and the culmination of all that, this command staff made that decision, which she neither supported afterwards after thinking about it or, was against it. She was against it from the beginning. She didn't want it. But after, after it happened, she was kind of ambivalent as to whether it should have happened or not. So that's, what's kind of new. And as you know, once they closed the precinct chop was developed and you know, it just, it, it all escalated from all these key decisions either made by chief best or another assistant chief at the time about the East precinct. Again, a subordinate, a bullet, the chief is responsible for, uh, closing the precinct. And now we have a, what we're finding out from the interim chief. Now, another subordinate of the chief an assistant chief was responsible for ordering all this tear gas for the first five days and is responsible for the decisions there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean this just, just sounds just bizarre to me. And I am not an expert on the internal command structure of SPD. I'm not an expert on policing, but with 20 years working in the media, I think I can safely say that I'm an expert on how things tend to play in the public. And the perspective here is, without knowing those internal mechanisms, because the chief, the interim chief, and City Hall have been so quiet about them, it looks as if Carmen Best did not have control of her department. These decisions are being made either against what she had expressly wished or without her knowledge. I mean, that goes to leadership, doesn't it? I mean, again, this is how it looks. I don't know if that's how it is because we don't know what's going on internally. The city's very quiet about that, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And we're just now, this is almost a year after all this happened, that these little revelations are coming out about the thought process and the decision-making at the time at um, all these incidents. And they don't seem to have... The buck doesn't seem to be stopping at Chief Best at that time, which is, I, you know, it scratches your head at that moment. You know, why isn't that happening? And again, the, in, in that same interview, Chief Best said that it took the death of Lorenzo Anderson, who was shot and killed inside CHOP on June 22nd. You know, that was 22 days after the, the pink umbrella incident for the city to finally start formulating plans to finally end chop it just they she said that she kept on waving the red flag saying we got to do something here got to do something here she even joked in her podcast that she the mayor had made a quote about the summer of love uh everybody's having a great time and but she all she saw was crime happening and she said that we needed to do something and so she's basically saying behind the scenes hey i was i was saying hey we got to get rid of chop we got to do something about it now and now she's, and then she says it's up to the death. It took the death of Lorenzo Anderson for the fight for the city leaders, other than her, to start waking up and start formulating a plan to end chop. And again, that will play. A, even this podcast will play a role in these wrongful death lawsuits, uh, a lawsuit by Lorenzo Anderson's family against the city, because they're basically accusing the city 
of uh, negligence for allowing CHOP to happen, which led to the death of well, the leader. Well, so. at least it, it sounds like maybe the decision to withdraw from the East Precinct was still up for debate over who ordered it and what happened, but the decision not to retake it seems to be resting right on the shoulders of Mayor Jenny Durkin. It, it, it appears that way. And again, coming back, I hate to bring it back to the, those missing links, those missing texts <laughs> during that time between the mayor and who she was texting with on her city phone, the chief of police, the fire chief, and other high officials within the eight, you know, the eight officials who somehow have missing texts all during this 10-month period, including this vital period when all this was happening with the CHOP and the protests. We don't know what was being said on the cell phones via text during this whole time. All right, Como's Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your insights. And, of course, we'll be back as soon as we have more information on what those texts said. Thank you. You're welcome. Still to come, the president orders an investigation into what many first believed was a conspiracy theory when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. President Biden has asked the intelligence community to report within 90 days the likely origins of COVID-19. This as questions grow about whether the virus was the result of an accident in a Chinese lab or spread through other means. Joining me now is ABC News correspondent Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And this, Andy, was something that was widely dismissed as a conspiracy theory for so long. But now this idea of that it leaked from a lab is getting some traction. Why is that? Well, the the latest story that we heard is that there are uh, reports that seem to be verifiable that there were at least two or three lab workers in this Wuhan uh, virus lab back in late 2019 in November or December that had gotten sick with COVID. That doesn't necessarily mean that it came from the lab, but it would certainly indicate that this is a lab that researches co- uh, coronavirus, that it may have come from there. Uh, we don't have anything dispelling or disputing that. Uh, China could really open its doors to the lab and to its records to say, yes, it did. No, it didn't. And that's not likely to happen because if China did indeed cover this up for the last 15, 16 months, then that would be really a a horrendous mass murder crime because either it happened on purpose, which I can't imagine why they would do it because quite a few Chinese people died too. Why would they do that if they wanted to unleash this on the world and to what end? Uh, but if it was an accident and they were researching some kind of variant that kind of escaped out into the wild, that is a also a serious liability problem for China. But we don't know the answer because China hasn't let anyone in to, to look at this stuff. So I'm not sure you're ever going to get an answer. The president's spokesperson today said that there are uh, three intelligence agencies here in the United States that two of them seem to go along with what Dr. Fauci says is the most likely way this happened, which is it moved from some sort of animal to human beings. And the, the stories we keep hearing are some kind of wet market where people bought exotic animals like bats to have as meals, and somehow it mutated from animals to humans, and that's how it spread. But now there is at least one agency in the United States that says they have very low confidence that perhaps it could have come from this lab, but again, they don't know. I, I'm not sure at to what point any of this goes to other than It would be a way to prevent this from happening again. But without China's cooperation, I'm not sure how we do that. What about the World Health Organization? Where are they in all of this? Well, they're investigating it, too. 
Uh, the former president just hammered away at this over and over again, saying basically that the World Health Organization was in bed with China because China gives so much funding to the WHO. So does the United States, or so did the United States, as well as other countries. You know, it's 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 really not clear. It doesn't seem to to be any clear answer to this here. They they want to know for sure, but you know, this is one of those things where the horse is already out of the barn. Okay, let's say it came from the lab. What do you do next? Does it, the, the entire world put some sort of economic sanctions on China until they reimburse everyone for all the people who died? It, it's really unclear where this leads other than to scapegoat and finger point. Uh, the White House and the folks in the, the NIH here, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, have been more along the line of what do we do to make sure it doesn't happen again? And one of the things that was in place to try to prevent that was uh, an agency that uh, President Obama had put in place when he was in office that was kind of an early warning system. And they were in places like Wuhan and other uh, places where there were virus labs and, and places where other coronaviruses had originated and spread before. It's basically to be an early warning system. And President Trump basically defunded that operation and closed it down. Uh, we don't know that they might have done something more to help prevent this here, but we do know that they weren't around when it happened. So is the Biden administration changing that? What are they doing to prevent this from happening again in light of this new information and in light of this theory that's gaining traction that it came from a lab? Well, the, the President Biden had has said in the past over the last few months that he wants to put back that early warning system in place. I don't know that it's actually happened yet or if it's even funded. But that's one of the things he wants to talk about. The other thing he's talking about, and really he's been focused more on trying to end this pandemic than prevent the next one, although he said that they want funding for it. And there was money in the COVID relief bill for that funding. He wants more of it to come in his next budget uh, that you have to be forward thinking. You have to be looking for where these things are happening. Remember the Ebola scare that we had a few years ago. And I think this was under President uh, uh, Barack Obama, where there was a case of someone who ended up, I think it was Houston, who got very sick and just this chill of fear ran through the country. And I think we had a grand total of maybe two or three cases that somehow got into the country. There wasn't very many and they were quickly isolated, but there was this chill that, oh my gosh, everyone's going to get Ebola in this country. It didn't happen in large part because they were able to isolate these very rare cases and the fact that Ebola came from one place in Africa and there weren't that many travelers from here. So we got very lucky with that. But in terms of this particular virus, COVID, uh, we did not get lucky that a lot of this got out of that country before we even know what it was or that it was a threat. And that was the problem that had it been identified quickly and isolated in Wuhan, we might not have seen this last year and a half of just incredible pain around the world. Have we seen anything, any suggestions from Dr. Anthony Fauci or any of the other virology experts about how we might prevent this from happening again? Well, again, the early warning system is one way of doing it. Uh, the other thing is, in, is research into these kind of uh, RNA vaccines that we're already seeing. And you know, this was really a modern day medical miracle that from the time it was identified to the time we started getting shots and arms in this country, 
was just about a year, just shy of a year. And I don't know that we've ever seen that with a vaccine in this country. And it's all because of these uh, messenger RNA uh, vaccines that were developed to show that you could just put uh, some kind of way to get the spikes on that protein that we've seen so many times and kind of develop an immune response in your body so that when you actually encounter COVID, your body could ward it off. Uh, And they think that there is some tremendous promise in that for all kinds of viruses, not just this, uh, but you need funding to do that. We saw this was massive funding that went into this year. It didn't just happen because uh, drug companies did it out of the goodness of their heart. They got billions of dollars from your pocket in your taxes to do these things. So do we want to prevent something like this from happening again? You've got to spend the money on research and development. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, a Northwest member of the Trump circle is on the outs, and now he plans to sue when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. In the first impeachment probe of President Trump regarding the president's dealings with Ukraine and his investigation into now President Joe Biden and his son Hunter, a local hotel owner proved to be a key witness. Gordon Sondland, who grew up on Mercer Island, served as U.S. ambassador to the European Union during the Trump administration. Now he's suing former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the U.S. government. John Hudson is covering it for The Washington Post, and he spoke with Como's Taylor Van Sice. John, what is Mr. Sondland claiming and demanding in this lawsuit? Sondland is claiming that Mike Pompeo, uh, in the run-up and during and after Sondland's entire experience being a star witness in the impeachment hearings, that his legal fees would be compensated. He's saying that Pompeo essentially communicated two things. One, you are not going to be represented by government lawyers. You need to find your own private counsel. And B, those you know fees will be compensated in the end by the U.S. government. Uh, now, that's not what happened. Sondland became uh, one of the most surprising witnesses in the end because he ended up confirming the quid pro quo between Trump and the Ukrainians. And he also gave a lot of detailed information uh, about how everything played out. He had all these firsthand accounts of what Trump said, what Giuliani said. And uh, subsequently, he racked up $1.8 million in legal fees. And he says, uh, after the testimony happened, and after he refused to resign, that his legal fees were never paid. Uh, And he wants either the U.S. government to cover those fees, or if the U.S. government won't, he wants Pompeo to pay that out of his own pocket. So what stuck out to me uh, in this was that $1.8 million for attorney fees. It seems high, but then again, I've never been an ambassador to the European Union needing lawyers to testify before Congress. You know, am, am I reading this incorrectly, that $1.8 million is a lot for attorney fees? <laughs> well, you're right. Most ordinary citizens do not find themselves in the center of the eye of the storm of an impeachment hearing. And uh, I asked his lawyers that same question, why is it so high? Uh, What they ended up saying is that, you know, what the government did when Sondland was at the center of this is they also restricted any information that Sondland could have based on his own resources, his own emails and things like that. And so it made it very difficult for Sondland's legal team to reconstruct and piece together all the datelines, the itineraries, uh, all of the series of events that were necessary to prepare Simon for a series of testimonies, you know, televised appearances 
with which he had to uh, really lay out what happened during that confusing time in U.S.-Ukraine relations. And, and, and of course, there wasn't a lot of room for error because if you misspeak, if you end up hiding things, you can be held accountable um, because you're testifying under oath. So uh, what they're saying that that was a very expensive process, and that's why the $1.8 million, uh, is, uh, is, is is being asked for in terms of remuneration. And finally, while we still have you, does Sondland stand a chance of winning this thing? You know what? I talked to legal experts, and they said that there is, you know, sort of a basic sense of justice where, you know, it was Sondland didn't want to be wrapped up into an impeachment hearing. And so he was sort of unwittingly the star witness. And they said that, you know, there should be a way to compensate officials who are just doing their job and testifying. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the lawyers that I spoke to said that it is really sort of a long shot for him to either win against the government or especially win against Pompeo. John Hudson with us on Como News, reporter for The Washington Post. And you can always find John's stories online at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks for joining us today. That's Como's Taylor Van Sice. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and for health, wellness, and more, take a listen to the Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.